I'm very much a, a gray area thinker. I don't fall into absolutes. I never have because absolutes never lead us to progress. Never, ever. Uh, so while questioning is really important, I, I fully condone questioning, uh, when something doesn't seem right. Unfortunately, a lot of political forces take hold of people who are either vulnerable or questioning and get their single issue interest into multiple other issues uh, where they would otherwise normally have thought the exact opposite. Simply because they've questioned one issue, they then get preyed upon to throw everything into question. I'm seeing people actually question climate change who would never have questioned climate change before. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Alex Stewart's passions run wide and deep. She founded the online community and education hub Lotox Life in 2010 and is responsible for birthing the Lotox movement with the phrase Lotox that has resonated with people around the world. Her international best-selling book, Lotox Life, and podcast by the same name, have supported millions in achieving their personal home and planetary health goals. She is a sought-after speaker and consultant to organizations committing to change for good, whether it's a focus on people's health or the planet's. She also has her latest book, Lotox Life Food, which I cannot recommend enough. And honestly, as you listen to today's podcast, you will see this woman is more than just the, the trailblazer for Lotox living. This woman has a political science background. She speaks fluent French. You wait till she helps us go down a little bit of a rabbit hole around today's current situation and where we're at in the pandemic right here, right now. Make sure you have some space to listen to this. She is a beautiful soul. I'm proud to call her a friend. And I just do truly believe with her journey around her mold issues, her own health issues, and also, you know, writing books while moving seven times, you'll get to understand just what a powerhouse she truly is. I look forward to hearing your comments. Make sure you follow her on all things Lotox Life, but you can also place your comments on this particular podcast at Kim Morrison and the number 28 on Instagram. You can also go to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training, and you are welcome to go to the wellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this particular interview. She is one in a trillion. I can tell you that. Thank you also for your five-star ratings. You have no idea how much that helps podcasts like this get into the ears of people that really do need a beautiful self-love boost. So from my heart to yours, take care, be kind, and enjoy this week's show. As you can hear, there is nothing that brings me more delight than to share special souls that I get to know a little bit more personally than most, but the beautiful Alex Stewart. It is an absolute honor to have you, not only as a friend, Mm. but someone who shares the space for passion around low-tox living, but also being our best selves. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, Gorgeous. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here, Kim. Look, we have known of each other and have been fortunate to present at different things together. But more importantly, I've watched you grow and there is so much about you that is so incredibly inspiring. But before we get into all the things that you're doing here and now, 
would you mind giving us a little brief background as to how you, where you came from, why Ruth, how you ended up speaking French? Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, but also, you know, what led you into this amazing work that you're doing today? Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So you said, why do you speak French? My mum is French Mauritian. And so, and my dad's British and they met in London when mum had moved there to go to uni and and work. And dad, cute dad, pretended he needed a French translator when he was fluent in French, but he thought mum was a bit cute. And so then a few years later, they got married and, uh, and we lived the expat life, London, Chicago for the first few years of my life, but came here. And then dad saw a business opportunity and bought a small business. And so I grew up in Sydney from the age of six. Um, but I've had very strong connections to my overseas family. Uh, we always, I mean, you know, typical middle-class family when middle-class actually meant that you could send kids to private school and own a business and a home. Uh, these days, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, thanks to our delightful politicians and systems, but total other subject. Uh, we used to go traveling once a year. We would spend a good month or a good two months on the summer holidays, either with our Mauritian family or our French family in July. And I was extremely close to my cousins. Uh, we had just the most amazing holidays and that helped really bed the language down for me. And then majored in French at both school. And then at uni, I did political science majoring in French. Uh, and uh, that was uh, that. That made me fluent. You know, when you're studying at the, at the university level, writing ten thousand word essays in a different language, you know that you've kind of got that for life. Uh, but I did Italian and Spanish as well. I love languages, uh, especially Romance languages, as you might be able to guess, fits in nicely with our love theme. Um, and uh, and I just really love communication. I always have, and it's I find it interesting how those innate loves of things manifest in the work we do Uh, you know i'm passionate about trying to figure out how to communicate in ways that actually affect peaceful change help people connect to each other help people find overlaps in times of polarization i think that's going to be especially helpful um and i think yeah languages is just one manifestation of that so not really much to do with leading a low-tox life. That came a bit later through a health challenge around tonsillitis where a naturopath, after becoming antibiotic resistant, identified that perhaps there was a food sensitivity that was causing the strep overgrowth to just keep coming back no matter how many times you tried to kill it. Gluten had shown up in really early research. We're talking 17 years ago before going gluten-free was a lifestyle choice or something cool to do. or uh, But this was really um, in its infancy. And I had to, without any resources, absolutely nothing to turn to, no books, no websites, nothing, quit gluten. And I felt like a social leper. I felt difficult. I was in hospitality at the time and staff meal. I became the special person who needed something special from the chef. Couldn't just, you know, whip up the bowl of pasta and hand it to me like everybody else. Um, And it was a really interesting thing to be an outcast. I think you can't know what that feels like until you've been one. And, um, And yet being an outcast, I think, makes you stronger. It makes you creative. It makes you grow. So I think anyone out there who's listening, who's felt like one, perhaps you felt like one because of your personal choices during the pandemic. I know a lot of people have. 
or then perhaps you felt like one because you were a different skin color to people in your class or you were fat <laughs> as a teen and that was absolutely sucked because you were different and people teased you. Um, so many people teased me. I was a 26-year-old successful, you know, one of the best bartenders in the country and then you were victimized. It was really interesting. But I learned a lot and uh, from that was born my, you know, Phoenix from the Ashes moment um, was very much around cooking and realising that I wasn't going to be able to turn to packaged foods so I was going to have to figure this out and, you know, steaming chicken and vegetables a few nights in a row because it was safe got me bored pretty quickly and the creativity sort of came from that. My dad always said boredom is a choice. And so, uh, you know, you can either choose to be bored with your food for the rest of your life or actually teach yourself how to cook. And so that drove me into the arms of produce and cooking and learning about the food system and then it wasn't until pregnancy that I started really thinking about then the, the home and the body uh, and what we were putting on our skin. And then once I looked at things like carcinogens, endocrine disruptors, and, and really became really well-versed when it came to food, body, home um, topics and how to choose safe, good products that were good for me, I started to realise that was also good for the planet. And that's where the environment came in. Uh, and and I think a real bubbling up of injustice came through me in the sense that um, I, I had the realisation that I had been to school for 13 years, an excellent private school, great education by standards, um, incredible university education. I knew how political parties formed, rise, <laughs> rose, how, how world wars were founded and the preceding events that led to such events. Um, and yet I didn't know about the food I put in my mouth. I didn't know about what I put on my skin. I didn't know about what I surrounded myself with in my home or how that affected me or the planet. And I think that is one of the greatest failings of the modern education system, this industrial system that gets us ready for jobs but doesn't actually get us ready for life. Um, it was really uh, quite confounding. And then it wasn't until even a decade later that I realised the same uh, was for finance. So if you didn't have friends, friends or parents that helped set you up with financial education, certainly didn't come from a formal education at school or uni unless you were studying finance. And even then, you'd know more about your stock markets than your personal budget. And it's just crazy. Uh, so I think there's there were some real injustices. And, and as someone who was a born educator, education, training, uh, teaching, lots of uh, consultants in the um in the what industry was I in first part of my career beauty prestige cosmetics I had a team of 40 consultants across Australia New Zealand and the Pacific and was responsible for their development that was something I really naturally fell into same happened with hospitality I worked for a few years to become the best and then I wanted to teach everyone how to be the best uh, and it's just natural for me to identify a better place for people to go and then to help them go there, whatever that is. And so when I had a little bub and I was taking a bit of time off work uh, and winding down my consultancy in hospitality, I thought, well, you know, it's crazy that people don't know how to choose a moisturiser that's not going to potentially give them hormone problems. It's crazy that we're spraying all this stuff around our homes to make them supposedly smell nice 
And yet, again, we could actually be endangering the health of our future generations. It was absolutely mind-blowing to me that you could think something was a great breakfast option, but that that could actually be setting you up for diabetes a decade later. Absolutely nuts. And I just had to educate on it. I just had to connect with people to see if other people cared about this, to see if people were lost in this space. And so being the most untechy person you could possibly imagine, ironic, I know, having an online business, but my, my sister, who was very techy, set me up with a blog on WordPress and, uh, and away I went. And it wasn't until a stranger said, hey, it'd be really great if we could talk about all of these sorts of things, like on a Facebook page or something back in 2011. And I thought, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll figure out how to do that. I'm terrible, Kim, really, really bad. But one thing led to another and luckily my passion for connecting with people and educating in topics that I feel are underserved has overridden my like massive dislike for technology. (laughs) So, yeah. You're amazing. It's, It's incredible really. Many people say when they start out in business, find your passion and let the rest fall into place, you know, allow the how to happen as you evolve. Mm. I'm sure there's many out there that would say a plan is the best thing to do and follow that plan. But I think you're someone who has such passion around a certain topic and you really do walk your talk. You mentioned very at the beginning about being special, difficult and outcast. Mm. In this day and age, there seems to be a growing swell of difficult, special outcasts, and there seems to be a growing swell of people wanting to question more. I know that number is still relatively small in the scheme of things, but then from your political science kind Mm. of a view and all of that sort of thing, how would you say the world then is evolving through this particular pandemic from your perspective? Uh, I think it's really interesting, Kim, and I'm very much a a grey area thinker. I don't fall into absolutes. I never have because absolutes never lead us to progress, never, ever. Uh, So while questioning is really important, I I fully condone questioning uh, when something doesn't seem right. Unfortunately, a lot of political forces take hold of people who are either vulnerable or questioning and get their single issue interest into multiple other issues uh, where they would otherwise normally have thought the exact opposite. Simply because they've questioned one issue, they then get preyed upon to throw everything into question. I'm seeing people actually question climate change who would never have questioned climate change before. So it's very interesting to me how we take single issue moments like a pandemic and the people questioning them and then prey on them to manipulate ways that they feel about other things. Uh, that to me is quite concerning. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I have a political science degree. It actually takes years to realise what these moments are and how the infiltrations happen um, uh, to, to really be able to stay big picture. I would recommend people read and always make sure you read around all sides of everything never ever go down rabbit holes where all of a sudden everybody feels the same way. That is one of the most dangerous thing any human can ever do because that is where forces that we don't even know about prey on people to then influence massive polarization. And what happens when we're then completely polarized is everyone's outraged by everyone else. 
And I'm, by the way, not talking about any one particular person on any extreme here because there are huge amounts of people on both sides of the extreme. And then a whole bunch of people in the middle who are like, oh, can't we all just get along? It's like the the damaged uh, household where there's lots of fighting. And, you know, I have felt that trauma, not in my personal life, but I have felt like, oh, this must be what that feels like for those children. Just be just like, will you all just stop being outraged at each other? And because of some personal stuff I've been going through, which we can, of course, talk about with mould and the most ridiculous amount of house moves uh, ever, um, I've really stayed out of it for my own mental health because I, I cannot become an expert in this space uh, without a significant amount of time and therefore I don't believe I deserve to comment. But, and, and I should say comment in any um, specific or uh, or definitive way, but I will say I I am a huge fan of the people who are able to speak about things moderately and pick interesting aspects of all sides of an argument. Uh, and a, a colleague who comes to mind straight away is Dr. Elisa Song, um, just an incredible pediatrician whose kids got COVID very early in the pandemic, like myself. Um, in March 2020 and uh, who has just towed the line of reason the entire way. And sometimes that is saying favourable things about what's happening uh, in terms of vaccination, for example, but sometimes also saying, hold on, when it comes to our teens or our kids, are we really doing the right thing? What is the science telling us? And just this incredible ability to keep us all on the straight and narrow, realise that there is merit in a few things that are happening, but also questioning the extremity to which those things are being applied, uh, which is, um, to me, (laughs) yeah, crazy how uh, extremely um, we are applying, for example, vaccination when we know so much about viral uh, uh, health mitigation in this day and age and and yet we're not allowed to have a conversation around effective treatments. Uh, That to me is really unfortunate, very unfortunate, in fact, because it doesn't advance science. But then again, you see the extreme of this believe the science side and anyone is outraged by anyone who supposedly doesn't believe the science. Uh, You see that extreme is also completely ineffective, just like the other side. Um, saying that it's all about freedom. So it's very interesting to me watching this polarised time. As someone who's just watching, I'm not right in there, I will say that, uh, because I literally haven't had the bandwidth on a personal level. But um, I truly hope that we can all just remember that reading extensively and from many sides of an argument and really watching the people who are at the top of the field of whatever's going on, whether that's a Ukraine-Russia situation, whether that's uh, a vaccinate or don't situation for public health, whether that's um, uh, people discussing various treatments and and look at how they're debating each other and the comments they're sharing about each other because you and I talking about it as non-epidemiologists, non-vaccine specialists, non, you know, I mean, really, we're just taking the Chinese whispers from the bottom of everything that's happening up there. And I think the the thing that upsets me about censorship is we're not allowed to see 
colleagues who are experts in these fields disagreeing with each other, debating each other, uh, and we're not allowed to talk about actual scientific research that is perhaps slightly different to what's being promoted uh, in various countries. And, uh, and then later a certain government body then comes up and says something to be fact that someone's been banned from sharing uh, information about uh, is a travesty. So as you can see, I'm completely grey area. I really think the peace is going to be found when we realise there's a lot of pain everywhere and there's a lot of fear driving the polarisation and there's a lot of fear in the most polarised people. Will I lose body autonomy? That is a huge fear people have. Um, But will I lose my grandma is the same fear if those people don't get vaccinated. It's still fear. And so if we're going to start trying to come from a place of love, which is exactly what you're all about, Kim, how do we disband that fear? How do we get people talking to each other and starting to openly share concerns? And I really believe that's through focusing on our overlaps more than our differences. I agree. And I also think if we could just have a beautiful insight and understanding that our opinions, our beliefs are driven by our values mm. and the things that matter to us or how we've been brought up or our, even our personality or what we're feeling in the moment as to whether or not we're in fear or in a space of love. And, and that's where I have such respect for everybody's opinion that it's all coming from different values and belief systems, our different yeah. filter systems, the way we were brought up, all of these things. I'm going to ask you, though, and I, I appreciate you're in grey, but <laughs> I really do want to ask you a, a, a friend-to-friend question. Mm. Do you believe there's a greater... Um, agenda at play here where there's this conversation around the elite there's this conversation around money you don't have to answer it but I'm just curious because I have got I don't know but I am flabbergasted when it hits me is the censorship why are we shutting certain people up so what is that drive can you help us here Mm, it's such a good question, Kim. Uh, look, I have been a huge fan of Bernie Sanders for uh, a decade now, I, I, and he has been championing the cleaning up of the, the hyper-billionaire uh, situation in the world because it is a dangerous situation. I mean, who didn't see a Hollywood uh, movie in the 80s about mergers and acquisi- acquisitions, right? It was the trend. You know, all of a sudden these companies were getting big enough to buy up smaller companies. All of a sudden these big agricultural giants, though, we didn't hear about those, were getting big enough to buy up all the small farms, Uh, All of a sudden, something like Citizens United happens in the States and we're just basically an America 2.0 light version here in Australia, unfortunately. Uh, We start seeing that there is an unlimited amount of money that is allowed to be starting to put, starting to be put into election campaigns, uh, some of which is somehow able to be undisclosed. So we don't even see who these people's sponsors are. And I think Yes, we can blame business, but I think we actually have to blame the political system that allows business to infiltrate politics. That, for me, is where the convergence of blurred lines of truth uh, becomes very, very murky because you then have situations which we saw with deadly sunscreens where in the Senate someone 
locks down a bill that was supposed to make sunscreen safer. And the reason they did that is because they received $400,000 from a certain chemical lobby. That should not be allowed. This. So we keep blaming all these people who have nothing to do in the end with the system that originates the problem. Uh, and it was a huge misstep in our, in our quest for true democracy uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s. And the flow-on effect has meant people are allowed to get bigger and bigger and bigger and amass more and more wealth untaxed at a just amount. Um, you know, the idea that I would pay more tax than Jeff Bezos is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So we have a system that unfortunately allows to create this big elite narrative, um, to create the idea that these people are actually in more control than governments are now. So unless we get the money out of government, the out of election campaigns, I think it's going to be very hard for us to start seeing more uh, corruption uh, task forces, more taxing of hyper wealth. Uh, and less of an ability for companies to just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they're more powerful than a country's appointed um, leadership. I watched a documentary, again, not sure its truth or validity, but it made sense called, I think, Monopoly Who Runs the World. It's something like mm. it's on YouTube. And it shows how the basically one and two companies, Vanguard and BlackRock, basically own every other company that sits underneath it and we little self-employed um, people down here very much at the bottom of the of the rank doesn't really feature it's all about that and I, I'm so my question to you then is okay so it seems to be a thing around money wealth there's always been an elitism around money and wealth the more you have the more you can get away with things the more you can say things the more you seem to be able to do things which then leads me down the path of greed and then, you know, dishonourable actions to have that because emotions drive behaviour. And if we feel good when we're earning lots or have lots of money and we own more, there's this ego-driven mentality that makes someone lead them to believe they're better than someone else. Mm. Yet you and I love to compost. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh. I'm just curious as to your thoughts then, again, from a political point of view and your knowledge, how money has become or has it always been the driver for all bad, maybe not so good behaviour and maybe some good behaviour? Yeah, that's another interesting, it's a very philosophical question too because you could argue that if you're raised with really great values and you're a humble person, like I think of Rafa Nadal, my favourite tennis player, uh, got to be one of the most humble people on the planet, uh, always uh, just a very nice, very simple, uh, very uh, family-oriented guy but with absolute squillions and doing incredible things for the world. So I really think you touch, you said the word values there. And I think if you have the right values and you're held to those values in the early part of your life uh, and very strictly held to them, really good parental boundaries, then I really don't think money is dirty or bad. I was raised in a family where uh, it, the, 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 the comment was often, oh, it's easy for them, they're wealthy. Uh, or, you know, I heard a lot of negative things about people with a lot of money um, in, uh, in public life, let's say. And so I thought 
um, you know, and couple that with 13 years at a Catholic girls' school, you end up feeling guilty all the time, trying to do everything for everybody else except yourself and thinking that money is bad and I should do everything for free, even if that comes at great cost to me and I have no choices. Uh, so I really think there's a very happy medium when it comes to money. And again, I'm going to mention Bernie Sanders. He's been rabbiting on about this for decades. I don't care whether you vote left or right. It makes no sense to erode the middle class because without a middle class, you don't have happy families, stable housing uh, prices, and you don't have the ability for all those people to go on all those holidays and buy all the things that make the current economic system, and I will say current because I do think there's change on that horizon, uh, work. Uh, so we end up with ton, like a very small amount of people who've got tons of cash and then a load of people who've got absolutely nothing, then we end up with an aristocracy again. And the whole reason democracy took over from aristocracy is because that was unjust uh, and, uh, and horrific. It just didn't work. It wasn't the way to make lots of people happy. So uh, I would really like to see uh, a breaking up of, of hyper wealth somehow. I don't know how that's going to happen, um, whether, you know, we cap you know, maybe a hundred billion is the most you're and anything over that, it goes to the government. So, you know, I just, who needs more than that? You know, we're talking about colonizing space to save the human race. Um, but the money that's being used to colonize space can actually regenerate every piece of farmland in the world, feed every hungry kid, uh, and put free composts in every home. <laughs> it's just crazy to me. And, you know, the best way to see how a problem is rooted, like where the root is, is to keep asking why. So there's too many rich people, why? You know, you just keep going until you actually get to something. And I keep coming back to rulings like Citizens United in the States where you then have this proliferation of money flowing through a government um, official's hands to help sway their vote on which way they go on something. We have that here in Australia as well, to a lesser extent um, in European countries, but it's everywhere. And we really, really need to stamp that out. I think at a uh, state level, we've done a really good job um, of rooting out special gifts and trips and all of that kind of thing. I think that's great. But uh, we need to go much bigger than that and we need to actually boldly tax. If you look at tax, uh, there were many fantastic, wealthy, super successful, and so they deserve to be. Their incredible minds led to incredible pioneering uh, of new technologies or things that made the world better. But they were taxed as well. They were still taxed in the 20% somewhere in there. Uh, and their companies were too. And I think we need to come back to that because if governments run out of money for good social programs, we then have unrest. What does unrest create? It creates desperate people who can't afford to eat. They then end up just as anyone ends up um, when they're vulnerable to any issue in the praying hands of someone who might lead them down the wrong path. Now, whether that's into gang violence, whether that's into uh, stealing and coordinated theft, uh, whether it's into drug dealing, uh, you name it. But desperate people do desperate things, not happy loved people who are safe and secure. And I think we really have a, a big challenge ahead of us 
uh, to clean up politics around the world. Well, I actually believe we could have a whole conversation on this alone. I know. I know. um, And it's really, um, I've I've not been asked about it before. So I really thank you for going down this path because it's something I talk about with my friends a lot, family. I'm French. You know, we have heated, passionate debates about everything all the time. Um, But uh, I would definitely urge people to read some some biographies on on political leaders of the 20th century. Can you Um, recommend any? Uh, or should look, we put that in the notes? Uh, yeah, we'll pop it in the notes. I'll actually have a think. I've always got an audio book going. I'm always listening to something because it helps you see whether they're a right-wing or a left-wing politician or a centrist. It helps you see how things come to be how they are, uh, key moments, um, and key moments from different people's perspectives, which is really important to keeping us uh, sane when things get really polarised. Well, I think from my humble viewpoint, sometimes we have to have an extreme left situation, for want of a better word, in order to then push us to an extreme right. And the only reason I can say this is someone getting an extreme health crisis Mm. that pushes them into a space of completely having to think of something and rethink the way. And then perhaps they become... They have orthorexia nervosa where they then become absolutely driven by health and wellness and become extreme right, if that's the right word. And then all of a sudden now everything you touch, see and do around that person, you feel, you know, you can't ever get it right. So we could look at these extreme views in all areas of our life. And I'm curious from your perspective then with your health crisis that you had, is that something that shaped you, as you said, to then be told not to have gluten, to then become the different person? Mm. How has that helped you? And what would you say to someone who's also perhaps gone along their life, mediocrity, yeah. and then all of a sudden they're confronted with choices? Do I do full-on, you know, radiation and, and chemical, you know, treatment of this, or do I go to South America and go and do the the Gershon technique. I don't know. I'm just curious as to what you would say or your thoughts around anyone confronted with anything around Mm. their health and wellness. Well, being antibiotic resistance to strep bugs um, that cause tonsillitis, because there's obviously lots of different strep bugs, um, that was my aha moment where something had to change. And then I remember, so so I was extreme convenience driven. I would drink like an up and go popper for brekkie, you know, busy hospo life. Uh, Lean cuisine was a regular feature in my freezer because that was easy. You didn't have to cook. And I would dunk those plastic pouches in the boiling water, by the way. Um, And, uh, you know, just, yeah, that was like I'd still ate regular food, but those things were a regular feature. Maltesers at the movies was a regular feature. Having a large popcorn, love the stuff at the at the movies with the lung, um, the questionable lung <laughs> health issues and all the things from the synthetic flavors that they added in there. But when you have a, an extreme event, it can push you towards another extreme. And I remember being quite purist about what I had decided I needed to do. Um, but I very quickly bounced back from that. And I think that was one of my major lessons because I realized that it was, um, uh, ostracizing to be an extremist in anything. Um, and to, um, and it was also bad for my mental health to have to be so careful 
and to um, have to be so militant about what I did. So I think, you know, to your example, you use the word left and right. I think just swing either way extremely is probably better because then people don't identify any particular um, uh, political stance on a, on a comment like that that's so valid because it's like a pendulum, isn't it? Something really bad happens this way and then you often go the complete other way. But if you go the complete other way without a mental health journey uh, to check you, uh, then that can actually be disastrous for your health as well, as we know, because then we can end up in fight or flight. We can see a non-organic chicken at a friend's house that we've been invited to and we're strictly organic and then that becomes a stress response in what should be a beautiful, loving situation, hanging out with family and friends. And so I very quickly found myself back in the middle, it's where I always end up, um, going, okay, so I'm going to do what I can do most of the time so I can go with the flow some of the time. And as soon as I made that decision, I've taught that mentality ever since. Uh, it has really been the mainstay of my ability to then weather a storm that was far worse, which was mold for me. Thank you so much for clearing that because I've never liked that thought of uh, aligning extreme views to politics all the way anyway. So thank you for that. I like the pendulum. And I also know that sometimes we have to do the pendulum swing to find middle ground. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. I love the going with the growing and glowing, going with the flow when we are in situations. For you then, okay, you've had this alert around your tonsils and the strep. You've now got this antibiotic resistance. You've now been told you can't have gluten. How on earth and where on earth now did the mould thing come about? <laughs> that came out of um, nowhere. And really uh, the only thing I can think is that we were there for so long uh, in this apartment. We were there for seven years uh, and, and it was a far worse problem than we thought. I mean, we just thought we had a little bit of mould uh, in the corner of one shower that was stubborn and just never seemed to want to be cleaned. And we thought when we had the big water leak that it was just so wonderful that our landlord fixed the roof straight away and, like, you know, replaced the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we had just come from an apartment that we could not clean for love nor money because it was so mouldy and spent like six months in there. And that wasn't even because mould felt bad for my health. That was still when I had the understanding of mould as just being this annoying thing and I just didn't want it to ruin my bags. You know, <laughs> that was me and mould, uh, which is most people, right? We just find it annoying, yucky, don't like the musty smell, don't like what it does to my bags and shoes. Um, so having come out of one place, then being somewhere where the landlord was prepared to fix everything and repainted the room and everything, um, we thought that was so great. So we just stayed there. But lo and behold, because of that big water leak in the roof and we were the top floor, uh, it must have just then started to permeate all of the walls. And it's interesting when something happens really little by little, you don't realise how musty something becomes. Um, and it wasn't like it was visible. It wasn't like you were coming in and it was like one of those current affair black wall situations. You just couldn't see it. But I remember once I was out of it for a few days and then went back home to start cleaning, I, um, I realised how musty everything was. Uh, it was actually really bad. And the only thing that I can think is that leak happened the first year we were there and then we were there for six subsequent years. And the first five years of that, you could put my health 
issues after five amazing years of living low tox and just feeling the best I'd ever felt after making all my changes, the next five years were like, why am I putting weight on around my tummy? Why am I so tired and brain foggy all the time? And, you know, just simple things that unfortunately seeing your naturopath could be put down to a bit of adrenal fatigue, a bit of uh, um, a bit of gut imbalance, uh, you know, maybe need to work on muscle tone a little bit more, get metabolically sorted. And I was going to the gym four or five times a week, so that really wasn't the problem. But um, you could kind of supplement yourself into feeling okay. It was that kind of health niggle. Uh, but I had a surgery uh, and that was 2016 in June because I had this recurring leaky tear. Like it just, my eye was just tearing nonstop. And so I went to the ophthalmologist. It was a completely blocked tear duct. Went to the ophthalmic surgeon, um, oh no, ocular plastic surgeon they're called. Uh, so I can actually lay the claim that I've had work done, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I haven't in any other way yet. But uh, and I say yet because I just don't like to promise anything. I was thinking, oh, you know, when I'm 60, maybe that little eyelid tuck, maybe. Um, but you know, I, I just think it's um, it's kind of like you know, little kids saying, I would never smoke and do drugs, and then you're like. Okay. Yep. <laughs> you haven't done 14 yet where you start questioning everything that your adult people have ever said to you. Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, total sidetrack, but this guy was, it seemed great, seemed to suggest that surgery, of course, as a surgeon was the only uh, possible thing that we could do to get this tear duct unblocked again and stop you from tearing, which it did for a while. Um, and then retrospectively, of course, I had gone with this leaky tear duct on holidays and the tear duct had stopped leaking while I was on holidays. And I remembered saying to him, don't you find it strange that, but I didn't know how to then extend that questioning and to find a root cause. I mean, it's a leaky tear duct, a blocked tear, what do I know about fixing one of those? So it's, um, it's retrospect sucks because you then see everything. And one of the chief symptoms of severe mold damage to a person is blocked tear ducts because you're so inflamed tear ducts are teeny tiny um, they can get blocked really easily and tearing is one of your symptoms so uh, just in case that's anyone else out there you might want to investigate mold um, but then yeah so after that surgery uh, my doctor thinks that the surgery was a, essentially a straw that broke the camel's back situation on my inflammation I started having palpitations. I then started having twitching, tremor, uh, full muscle spasms, involuntary. Uh, I started experiencing horrifically painful um, shooting pains anywhere and all around my body, horrible electric shocks. You know, closing the car door was like a uh, started using a cloth kind of situation. Um, and then the brain on fire was just insane. It was like I was, it was like my brain was a burning building. It was absolutely the darkest time in my life without a doubt. And I remember I had one, an incentive trip. I had a young living business at the time and, uh, we were offered a, a trip to Disneyland, which was just amazing, such an incredible opportunity. And I remember the travel agent saying, uh, will anyone in the party need a wheelchair? It was just like a, part, a standard part of their questions, uh, you know, getting a party ready for a travel. 
And I thought to myself, okay, it's November now, it's March this trip, maybe. Like I actually thought that, Kim, um, it was bad. It was really, really bad. I couldn't walk my son down to school without pain in my all my muscles. It was horrific inflammation, just a full inflammatory cascade. And I spent probably about $20,000 over the next six to nine months, most of my savings uh, at the time, um, on trying to figure it out. No one could figure it out. Uh, unfortunately, everything I tried with the naturopath made it worse. Uh, and everything I tried with, you know, going to the cardiologist, getting my heart checked out because it was skipping beats, it was stopping starting, was so scary and no one could find anything wrong with me. I was like, what the heck is this? And I found a doctor, a chiropractic doctor actually online who had a bipolar schizoaffective disorder son and that had made him then go on to study complex illness, chronic illness and try and support people. And he, uh, he had a podcast, I remember listening to a couple of his shows, thinking, gosh, this guy really knows how to dig and just look at everything from genes to, uh, to living environments. And I remember I thought I'm going to book a session and, like, the opening session was $700. It was crazy. I was like, but I just I had a sixth sense that he could help me. And I had the opening questionnaire, the patient questionnaire, took me about three and a half hours to fill out. It was that thorough in terms of the life I had lived and, and everything. And um, when we, uh, I think at the end of our second session, we identified mould as a possible cause and, um, and a couple of nutrients that help a massively dehydrated person. So you're very dehydrated. Your water metabolism gets completely screwed. So while you could be drinking a ton of water and you're thirsty all the time when you have mold illness, none of it's getting into the cells properly. And so, um, and then of course the cell membrane um, with all that wonderful choline has been dramatically uh, compromised. So your nutrients aren't getting in and out of the cells. Um, and uh, he just got me on a multi-mineral, an electrolyte and a huge dose of B12 on top of a few basic things I was taking. And the difference within a couple of days was already like 30% better. It was incredible. And so um, I worked with him a little bit more than I found a local integrative physician that I worked with uh, some more. And we started on binders and all the other things. We obviously had to get out of the mould. Uh, we found a, a, a place that was um, almost mould-free except for one cupboard. Um, but that was just so much better than where we were that I improved like 60% in two weeks. I wasn't tremoring or shaking anymore. Uh, I didn't have quite as many muscle twitches. So everything was just starting to calm down a little bit. Um, and ever since, four years, it's been a journey of getting better and better until then having two recent exposures uh, a couple of years ago that um, led to seven house moves. And the reason it was seven house moves is because you have to go to the emergency Airbnb, you know, and then you have to find something else and then all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I can tell you I do not recommend writing a book and moving house seven times during a pandemic to anyone because that really knocked me for six, Kim. That was it's probably the biggest test of my life. Can I ask you, just before we come back to that, could you just explain just very quickly if possible, is it the mould spores that get into your lungs or they get into your, like how mm. does the mould itself actually affect all of that physiology? 
So the mould spores release mycotoxins, uh, various forms of mycotoxins. There are quite a few, and those mycotoxins affect the human body differently and they affect different individuals differently. So my husband was barely affected at all uh, and my son, being the, the genetic combo of both of us, was mildly affected, you know, with coughing and respiratory. We used to nickname him like in an endearing way, Mr. Staphylopagus when he slept. Um, and, you know, I would give him his vitamin C and zinc and make sure he was having his basic immune things. So he didn't get sick very often. When he did, he fought it off pretty well. Um, but he was very noisy and he had nosebleeds, um, like, you know, one or two a week. And no one could really explain why he had those. Um, and for a super, super active kid, he also had some metabolic issues. You could just see low muscle tone um, and a bit of a belly fat. And that's just very strange for a child who eats the way he eats and, and exercises to the degree. I mean, he just does not stop moving. So um, that, you know, affected me metabolically as well. Um, but what mould then can do is compromise your immune system uh, quite badly uh, in terms of messing around with your immunoglobulin, with your antibodies, uh, and you can then get to a point and it is thought to be potentially, and I say potentially because it's never been absolutely decided in the science, that about 24% of the population has a genetic makeup that does not recognise mould as toxin to be able to eliminate it. I happen to be in that 24%, so is my son. So, yeah, it feels pretty probable to me. Um, but until the science is settled, we really do have to do the N equals one and, and work with people who are deeply understanding of, of the fact that you need to be guided by a patient when you don't know how to normally deal with this so that their symptoms drive your decisions as a practitioner. And, um, and, and so if you are then in this body that mould is allowed to proliferate in, whether that's in your lungs, whether that's in your fat tissue, uh, it can kind of end up everywhere, uh, you, you have to do something about trapping and removing it because your body's not naturally going to do that for you. So you need to bring in external help. And this is why I can't stand it when you hear these mainstream messages around detoxification, like, oh, but your body has a, a detoxification system all of its own. You don't need to add products. I'm like, <laughs> would you like to try living with mold illness? Uh, you know, it's um, until you've lived it, it's very hard to understand it because it's one of these issues that isn't recognized by medical associations around the world it's very much recognized by researchers but we all know that research science unfortunately takes many years before it becomes uh, potentially common practice in everyday um, uh, medical circles so you are largely living alone and you're largely living on your own dollar uh, healing mold illness all the things you've been through right from when you were young your upbringing all of the beauty and all of the challenges you know there's have you have you questioned yourself throughout this have you mm -hmm. ever felt like you're not good enough have you ever like you said moving seven times writing a book having child running an online business I mean Alex you're you're <laughs> doing what most of us do on a daily basis but it's even more heightened and there must be moments where you've wondered is this all really worth it? Who am I? What's this point? Can you explain to us how you've got through those really, I would imagine, dark times? Yeah. Uh, I am an optimist big time. I'm an idealist for sure. 
uh, to a fault sometimes uh, because I can uh, see the good heartedness in people when maybe I really shouldn't. <laughs> um, but I think that also helps um, with one's own internal peace. Uh, and uh, I avoided anything that um, was going to hinder me outside of my own little circle and world. Um, and by, what I mean by that is um, uh, I, I've shied away from activism to the degree I would normally be an activist in things like climate change and education because I simply just don't have time to argue with people. I don't have the bandwidth to argue with people. Uh, I, you know, I've avoided any kind of polarised conversations during these pandemic times largely because, um, you know, there's absolutely no point in trying to educate someone who has made their bed uh, either way, um, as I always say, because I'm very grey area. And, uh, like, I, I just, I have had to do all of that for my mental, just avoided all of that intensity in the outside world to protect my inside world um, during this particular time in my life, that two years that's just passed. Um, and yeah, you know what? It's not, it's not been a, what is this all for so much? I did have a moment when I came down with the mold illness years ago, initially, um, feeling like a bit of a fraud, like the whole low tox thing, you know, I thought, uh, you know, I was teaching people how to lead a low tox life and yet here I was sicker than I'd ever been. Um, and that was really icky. I, I felt like uh, I, I didn't deserve to be in that position for a little bit and I had to do some internal work to say that even everybody who's an expert in anything can then be hit by a challenge in that domain. Um, and just because they can't figure it out for themselves at that time doesn't make them a bad person. In fact, it probably means that as you come through those challenges, you'll then be able to help people in a more powerful way than ever before, um, which I can tell you right now, touring my first book and going on all those wonderful talks and hugging so many people, as I had started to come out about mould and how dreadful a period of darkness it had been in my own health, and started to tell people, you know, these are the signs. It's either water damage or humidity. How can you tell which one it is and what could you do and who could you turn to? Here's who I've turned to. Here's the group I joined. I mean, you know, least sexy name for a group on Facebook ever is the Toxic Mold Support Group. i got to tell you, Kim. But honestly, in my times of difficulty, those gents who started that group because they went through that and they just could not accept the idea that people wouldn't have somewhere to turn, uh, uh, Caleb and Jason, uh, just absolutely incredible humans for what they've done for the community of people suffering mold illness in this country. Um, so, uh, you know, I was able to then turn people to resources who had been just like me, so sick, so unbelievably unwell, and uh, and had people say, "Sorry, your bloods look fine, and I and your heart's looking fine on the ultra. I don't know what to do with you." Um, that's got to be one of the most lonely places a human can end up, not not because you have hope taken away from you. Uh, and if you're not strong and like, you know, I had that beautiful upbringing, great education, incredible love, um, and I genuinely believe that that is what has given me the sense that it is always worth hoping. Um, I know people who've come from horrific trauma who still even have hope and I don't know how they do that. Like uh, I I. I can't speak for someone else's lived experience, but I do know that mine certainly gave me an advantage in a dark time, for sure. 
um, because, you know, if you throw that much at an individual, I forgot to mention extreme anxiety, like my husband coming around the corner of our apartment, I would jump as if there was an intruder, that kind of level of heightened anxiety. Um, you know, if you didn't have a really strong base from which you came, I, I don't really want to think about what that time would have done to me and I, to, to be able to show up for people and help them join the dots. I've had people crying in my arms saying, you've saved my life. I did nothing. I'm not a doctor, but I just went through this horrible thing and talked about it and that helped other people. And if, I mean, I will never be grateful to have come through something like that. I mean, it's just sucked so bad. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, the fact that it can then be a drive to make other people's lives better is consolation and the best kind you do it so beautifully i i have a belief and again this is just with the work i do that the love we have for ourselves especially holding ourselves through those challenging times constantly showing up for ourselves trying to find someone else get more answers takes a lot of energy especially when we're our energy levels are low if not even there for many moments like in our lives when we are so flattened down to me, the thing that truly has got me through is just the belief that I will get there. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully yeah. there is always a way through. The worst thing to do is to give up in my humble opinion, stay in action, keep working towards something, even if it's just little steps. Mm. So, I mean, I believe that self-love is the foundation for all things. If we can show a little bit of glimmer of hope and light and love for ourselves, then that can honestly bring people to us in new ways that we never imagined. We become more of a magnet in those situations. Mm. But it's bloody hard. Yeah. In your humble opinion then, do you agree that self-love is really important? And if so, what's your definition of it? So important, Kim. And I think for me, uh, it's funny, as you said that, I was thinking about in the worst times what helped me love myself um, and it was huge amounts of cuddles with my boy. Like I just, uh, it was almost like skin to skin contact for a newborn for me. I would just needed a ton of cuddles and I needed to know everything was going to be okay. And luckily I've got a husband who's the, you know, he's with the SES. He's one of those guys who is in his happy place, abseiling down something, rescuing somebody. Um, and so to have that kind of a rock during the really hard times who, isn't going through the brain fog, thankfully, and isn't um, feeling awful to be able to manage the to-do list and get that done was just incredible. So I had the love, I had the can-do spirit, and then me in the middle, I was just looking after myself. I read a lot and I didn't have the energy to read a physical book. It was just audio books, um, which I've loved ever since. I've actually not really gone back to written books. I just love taking a great book out into nature and just listening to someone transmit a beautiful message uh, or a story. Um, so lots of books, uh, lots of time in nature. I think uh, there's a, a real misconception. There's like you have to choose um, the country or a regional area to to feel connected to nature. I just don't dis I just disagree with that so much. I'm such a city girl. I love my Sydney. And uh, for me, just being in a park looking out of the water or being on a beach and putting my feet through the sand, uh, you know, you can't tell me that that's not great. <laughs> it's great. I'm really happy. And then I get to go to the theatre at night. <laughs> um, and so um, 
Uh, and, you know, I love all my regional and country friends as well. I just think we have to be true to ourselves and I'm very much uh, at home in the city and, um, and finding those nature spaces and, and looking up into the trees, just lying on the grass and just feeling the wind through my, on my face as I look up at a tree and that for me is self-love, you know. And then ironically at my absolute, well, probably just after my absolute sickest, which when you're 60% better from something that I was as sick as I was in, you feel like a million bucks. Like sleeping six hours a night is a high five that you didn't like, you know, wake up six times peeing um, and, uh, you know, with this horrible nervous system dysregulation. So I took up my childhood love of tennis again. And tennis was re- has been really interesting for me because tennis is a sport where there is no one there to save you but yourself. You are out there, you are in the arena and you have to fight and battle and find hope in some of the toughest situations. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's such an interesting juxtaposition for me that I chose such a difficult sport, uh, both physically and mentally, probably the toughest because you're alone. Um, out of all of them during the toughest battle of my own life. Uh, and if I was out on the court and I could win a point, that was hope in my personal life as well. And if my serve improved and I, I felt a cleaner slice, it felt like if I worked on something over and over and over again and I improved it, then I can do that in my personal life too. And it was this amazing, I wasn't even articulating it that way back then, but um I absolutely feel that tennis was a huge part of my um, healing and recovery because I also started to be able to measure how much better I was getting in my personal life by how much more quickly my heart rate would recover after playing tennis, basic HRV, long before I had an Ura ring. Um, and, and I think then watching Nadal's recent win, uh, his 21st Grand Slam, um, uh, recently and what he came back from, how deep he had to dig against arguably the best hardcore player in the world right now to somehow come out fitter, stronger, better and win, for me was such an emotional five and a half hours of my life. And I know for a lot of Australians out there watching the Aussie Open and a lot of people around the world, but uh, I just took it to levels of depth of I've got this um, that I saw in him that I kind of recognised and not that I'm comparing myself or certainly not my tennis to Rafa, although I am a lefty. Um, but I, I think seeing an athlete like that dig themselves out of that, it really for me highlighted how people dig themselves out of these ridiculously dark holes of health, mental health, uh, personal experience, abuse, trauma, you name it, like dark, dark stuff and somehow finding the hope that there's a better day around the corner. Um, I, yeah, tennis was a symbol of, of self-love and hope for me, for sure. Oh, I love that so much. I've always looked at sport as a metaphor for life. Mm. Married, I married a professional cricketer. I ran in yeah, Australia yeah. and I'm the same when I'm out running, especially on the days that I'm not feeling great or I'm going through a challenge. It's funny, I do the same thing. I've just realised that I'll go, if you can keep running quite at this pace to those three lampposts, you're going to get something really good come to you today. And then I believe that. 
And then if you don't give up until you get to the very end of this, this will show you you can do that in all things. After all, all humans have all traits. All things have all possibility. I have these constant conversations when I'm, and I'm not running fast. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not winning some, you know, some two-hour, three-hour marathon. It's like, you know, just, really, you know, I'm, it's not. But I really appreciate you saying that because I've always looked at sport. And I would imagine if I was a musician, or as a painter, you could do and apply the same analogy. Mm. Even cooking for me is a beautiful way for me to to release stress, but also to get into my creative space. And that's something yeah. that I've really loved about both your books. I, I wanted to wa- add one other thing to you, just because we both had the same passion. For me, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this either, but essential oils have also been an incredible tool for all health conditions because it's to me one of the few modalities that taps not only into the physical response that we mm-hmm. get with an oil, but also the emotional response. Mm. Have you found, and also they're highly antiseptic and antibacterial when you use beautiful, pure products. I've always looked at them as my little, you know, coat of armor as well. Have they been yeah. like that for you too? Ah, oh, for sure. And different scents and different um, different things are elicited by um, essential oils. You don't even need to study them to just intrinsically feel your way towards a particular one at a particular time. And I mean, yours are gorgeous, Kim. You've got such a beautiful range. So you you have like this world at your fingertips all the time with um, with probably the whole stash at home. And um, and I just think, like you said, it's not just about what the research says that they're good for, but it's actually such an emotional interaction um, when you interact with sense. I mean, the research around um, olfactory senses, allegory, so, you know, scent and memory, uh, things take you back to your childhood in a second. Like I open up the lid of a neroli oil and I remember my grandmother, when we were unwell, a bit under the weather, she would whip out the fleur d'oranger, which is orange blossom, and put in a teaspoon of sugar, probably not ideal, but she would mix a few drops of this um, fleur d'oranger. It was a distillate, like a, like a hydrosol almost, uh, in the glass with the um, sugar. You would drink it. Um, and it was probably a sugar high in all fairness, but Fleur d'Orange came from somewhere in French culture. It was obviously warranted because this was the sort of thing that was handed down by generation through generations. And um, you'd be out playing with your cousins in no time. Like just such an incredible memory to then be a 46-year-old woman, like having a little stiff and going, oh, and, you know, my grandmother's there with me. I mean, how amazing is that? We, I, we talked about connection at the opening of this chat. Um, and I can't think of a more useful, uh, accessible tool to connect with our bodies and what they need, uh, to connect with our well-being. Like, oh, that just smells like exactly what's calming me down, right? You know, you have that feeling or pepping me up um, or revitalising me. Uh, and then to connect with memories. Like what an incredibly powerful tool. It's amazing. I'm so grateful you shared that. And, um, you know, every time I go to France, I feel like I have mm. past lives there. That's why I think I just need to come and see you when I come to Sydney next. Um, <laughs> you do. You but do. I just absolutely love the connection to the, the repertoire of medicine and how medicine has evolved from plants and nature and beautiful things that our forefathers and mothers tested time and time again. And mm. I think the beauty of science is how well we've managed to maybe separate some of those active botanicals or active ingredients to create medicine and there's nothing 
greater than emergency medicine. But gosh, if only we could tap back into that real mm. knowing, that innate knowing of what our forefathers and mothers spent so long creating for us. I just that's where I find essential oils, herbs, all of these things, even our food, which is. Look, we haven't even started talking about your books, but your new book, we have Low Tox Life, which has been a staple for me. I used to call my talks Chemical Free Living, but it was thanks to you, there's no such thing. Yeah, um, but it was a real understanding of, I guess it was the idea of chemical free living, I, but I really, really appreciated meeting you many years ago. But the new book, Low Tox Food, which you wrote during Seven Moves and all <laughs> the other things, I don't know how you did it. And one of the terms that I hear a lot at the moment, or a couple of terms, biodynamic, permaculture, regenerative farming, holistic management, all of these things. And you, my friend, have nailed it in this book, explaining all of these things as well as composting and all of the things. And from your heart, I feel all these beautiful recipes, which I have to commend you on. They are stunning. Thank Could you. you just give us a beautiful brief account as to how Low Tox Food came about? And, you know, it is a delightful book. It is so amazing for its price. And I just love everyone to hear about it. Give us a synopsis. Sell yeah, it to, sure. Sell it to us. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Kim. Um, without being able to do too many live events lately, um, I appreciate any chance to get it in front of people um, because I really believe every home should have it. And some of the uh, feedback I've gotten from people, interestingly, I didn't even think about this person in my mind when I was writing the book, but parents who have kids flying the nest and they're like, I have given my daughter or my son your book as their mainstay staple to just understand and figure out food and know how to shop and know how to find good sources and then super easy recipes that anyone can actually do. Um, and that for me was just the best compliment because for me that means that a person starting out their own understanding as a new adult of food and having me as their guide to help steer them in a really balanced, beautiful, compassionate, simple way for their whole life, I feel grateful that I got into their hands because I think food has just been so over-productized both as the product itself, the food that one might eat, but also in the diet space in terms of protocols and cure-alls and silver bullets um, and, uh, and people are more confused than ever. You know, we have, we have dietary associations still funded by big, 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 uh, food conglomerate companies. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, that comes back to money and politics, right? And if we work that out, we are going to have a very peaceful world. Um, uh, that's a, my, one of my favorite things to think about how we might actually get that happening. But in this book, we do it from the grassroots, which for me, there couldn't be a more intimate way to create change than from the times that we sit down either with ourselves for some self-love or with the people that we love to share food and nourish ourselves. And uh, it's such a broken system, such an over-politicised system, such an unjust system, especially for our animals in the past few decades, that the food system has been to then be able to try and create a message of unity that you could be any type of eater. I don't care if vegan works best for you, vego works best for you, pescatarian, keto, uh, 
paleo, omnivore, carnivore, whatever, that you might sit down and read a book that helps create a, a story more about our overlaps than our differences where we can actually focus on what's really going to drive change when it comes to food and our planet and our health, of course, um, which is eliminating food waste, eliminating processed, ultra-processed foods. Processed foods, not so much. I mean, olive oil is a processed food, so they're not all bad, but ultra-processed food. Uh, And then upgrading where we source our food from so that we're focused on trying to connect however and whenever possible with regeneratively farmed food. Um, And by regenerative, for the people who are new to this, I mean giving more to the planet than we take in the farming process. So farming, whether it's animals, plants, or a mix ideally of both, which is what creates the greatest biodiversity, as we've been shown by Rudolf Steiner in the early 20th century, and unfortunately as much of the great work done in the early 20th century around health, that got swept under the carpet. Um, But, you know, biodiversity is king. Biodiversity creates predators for the pests. Biodiversity creates carbon sequestration machines. Biodiversity draws clouds, which draws rain. I mean, it is unbelievable when we get this right. Uh, And the fact that you can live in the city, the country, a little regional town, and we can all work together to get it right from our plates every day and from our worm farm or compost bin uh, is mind-blowing to me, you know, that we have this power and to connect people to that power through such an intimate process and make delicious things uh, is just so awesome. Like, I mean, what incredible work to get to do as humans every day. We're doing this incredible work. And once we actually articulate that it's incredible work and a huge responsibility and we lean into that responsibility, again, we can all get together and create change. It transcends politics. It transcends ways that you eat, diets you subscribe to, Uh, it transcends socioeconomic boundaries. We can all do something. And that for me is one of the best things we can work on to remember our commonality in our community. That's incredible. I love the four main chapters. I just want the listener to hear. Number one is how did we get here? I love the way you go back. I love that quote of Rudolf Steiner's and he, you know, his philosophy, the Steiner teachings are something that I've really embraced with raising my children at times too. Number two is what's best for our planet. I love the way you look at all the things like from the is it the, uh, the clean 13 to the dirty, no, the dirty dozen and the clean 15. I love that. I love the whole way you talk about the history and the way we go into how farming has worked in the past and how we can go back to that. Number three, change starts with us. I think this is the most defining lot of chapters for me because most people might think, well, how do I compost? Or I don't know if I could make a difference. And what I think I really take from that is that every little thing we do makes a difference and so it does start with us I really appreciated that um and then my favorite oh they're all (laughs) my favorites but the favorite (laughs) let's cook and your recipes and I even asked you off air you know all the imagery the pictures in here the way your boys growing up I just I really want to congratulate you from my heart to yours especially knowing what it took for you to get that out there So I would love to say to every person listening to this, one of the greatest things you can do for pioneers and trailblazers like our beautiful Alex Stewart is to share the love. Your word means so much. And this is the beauty of social media and platforms like podcasts. The more we can celebrate, honour, respect, revere the people that we look up to, the people that make a difference with their passions, 
the more we actually get to share the love. And that is something that is my greatest wish on this podcast is to share incredible souls like yourself and see that we are part of a beautiful community of people wanting to make a difference. Maybe I am a little bit more centralized. I'm certainly not a pendulum great swinger by, by no stretch of the imagination. But then I guess when it comes back to my beliefs and values around food, you could say I'm very swung in certain ways. So I just want to thank you. I feel very aligned with your work. I feel very privileged to be a part of your world. And I love our conversations. I just cannot congratulate you enough on this beautiful book and everything that you do. Oh, thanks, Kim. Thanks so much for having me. It was such a, it was like a DNM with a good girlfriend, a few places we went there. And um, I, th- I think the more we have these conversations, the more clarity of thought ensues and the more we realise that while we think we know everything about everything in, in, in eventual uh, realisations, uh, it's a far more relaxed approach to meet together in the grey and respect each other's differences while we work together to form community and overlap. That's really one of my great passions as I move forward. I really appreciate that. And honouring our differences is probably maybe yeah. the greatest wish we could ever have in the moment right. on this planet right now. Mm. Um, sweetheart, you also offer beautiful education programs and things like that. For the person driving and listening, I know they can look at the notes, but just so that it stays front and centre of their mind, where can we find you and where's the best way we can get these books and your programs? Well, uh, when I founded Low Tox Life back in 2010, I decided to keep things very simple and name everything Low Tox Life. So my book and my second book, Low Tox Life and Low Tox Life Food, uh, you can get those at Booktopia or any good independent bookstore. Uh, please don't buy it from Amazon. <laughs> um, and uh, what else? The podcast, also called Low Tox Life, website, lowtoxlife.com, Instagram, you guessed it, Low Tox Life. So anyone that's called low tox something else that's not me i do not endorse any other messages you just find me at low tox life plain and simple and just for everyone's sake alex is spelt with two x's so then you also know where she is now i'm going to ask you you beautiful soul for i love to know a quote that means something to you at the moment could you share that with us oh goodness So I've been, this has been a running theme with my son and helping him grow his confidence lately. Tends to get very stressed on the tennis court, another fan of tennis, um, and, uh, and can be really, really hard on himself. And that can end in tanking a match uh, against his better judgment, uh, but he can really just throw things away. And we're working on building that up and, I always say the wonderful quote of Henry Ford's, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are right, uh, to remind us that it's a success or personal success, and I say personal success because it's not about dominating someone else. Yes, there's a winner or a loser in sport, but it's really about being better than yourself yesterday. And that belief is so, so important. Chronic illness, uh, overcoming something no one thought you would, or on a tennis court or in a sporting match of any kind or, or running an extra kilometre in your run or whatever, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are right. And i got to remind myself about that quote often. You know, we have to, oh, here I go, yep, internal dialogue. If you think you can't, then you won't. Uh, so change it up. And, um, and that for me is a, a common quote that has always come back to uh, finding my own centre and, and re-injecting myself with some belief. 
going to challenge you one step further. I have mm-hmm. not prepared you for this. <laughs> yeah. Now you need to say that in French for me. Ah, si tu crois que tu peux ou tu crois que tu peux pas, euh, tu es, euh, you are correct, you are right. Ah, tu as raison. Yeah, so. I want to hear it all again. <laughs> Si tu crois que tu peux ou tu crois que tu ne peux pas, tu as raison. Oh, so love it. I love you. Thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. Love you dearly, beautiful Alex Stewart. Thank you, Kim. So wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.